This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here on a kick in the grass across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Big news of the day, Frank. We all knew it was a possibility coming into the season, but Chelsea hasn't wasted any time moving on from Frank Lampard as their manager. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here on a kick in the grass on the day Chelsea moves on from Frank Lampard as their manager Thomas Tuchel is coming in to take over. Uh, Jeff, your immediate reaction to Frank Lampard out. Oh, well, it wasn't he he wasn't the manager that I thought would be under the most pressure if you told me that that Frank Lampard would be gone before Steve Bruce or even Ole Gunnar Solskjaer about 2 months ago I would have laughed at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's good they're bringing in a guy with experience in the Bundesliga seeing as how his first priority is going to be to try to figure out what to do with Kai Havertz to a lesser degree Timo Werner but um yeah I uh I don't know about this this move you, you know on, on on the part of Chelsea I would have preferred to give Frank a full season with this particular group, let him sort things out. Uh, The new guy that comes in, uh, Tuchel, is basically going to have to do the same thing Frank's been doing for the last last month and a half. Maybe the familiarity with Havertz and and Werner will help. But, uh, look, if I can't get somebody like Julian Nagelsmann or somebody like that at this point in time, I just finish the season with Frank and then do a proper search. Yeah, I, I guess the 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 worry is that uh, they miss out on the top four after spending so much money, um, which is always going to be a risk in the Premier League just because of how deep uh, the division can go. And we're seeing Everton and Aston Villa have have strong seasons now. Southampton is no slouch. Not that they're taking those spots, but you know they're certainly uh, making noise. And Tottenham's been better this year, so it's it's not easy as we know in the Prem to to get there. Um, and I should mention Leicester. I always forget Leicester, but here they are. They're probably going to win the title again this year. Um, it's no. it's <laughs> it's just one of those things with with Lampard, though, Jeff. Like this was the first opportunity to do it. You know, they were top of the league on December fifth. Here they are going through a bit of a rough stretch over what six weeks, basically, and immediately he's gone. They, they never had faith that Frank Lampard was was able to do this job and they they were looking for the first opportunity out you know and and this kind of confirms that I don't really disagree though because I nothing that Lampard has done through this first 18 months or certainly under this new roster with this new squad that he's been given nothing over these number of months really suggests, He's the guy to get it done. I don't think he's got the tactical uh, ability. Um, he, he certainly, uh, reading some of the stories coming out, there was a lot of discourse, it seemed, between him and upper management, not lack of communication with his players. I just, I don't think Lampard was ready for this job to begin with. Yeah, it's it's interesting you made that point because one of the things that must be said about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is he did seem to be on the same page with the folks above him. And 
although we knew or we'd heard that there were a few issues in the locker room, it doesn't seem as if it ever got poisonous. You know, even with Paul Pogba, it doesn't seem as as if it ever got poisonous. So that is true. I again, I just you know, you're bringing in a guy who whose track record is generally that he can't get teams over that final hurdle. And my God, I mean, he had trouble with PSG. What's he going to do when he has to decide between Tammy Abram and and and, and Giroud? Um, yeah, I'm 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 really underwhelmed by it. As I said, if you're going to move the manager, okay, do it, but bring in somebody with a with a bit more of a of a of a track record, or bring in somebody with a bit more of a future than this guy. Like this guy won't be. I'll tell you right now, he will not be around within twelve months. I guarantee you, he'll be gone in twelve months. Yeah, and the uh, ever revolving door at Chelsea in the manager position will continue. Let's uh, get a closer look at this change by Chelsea with Dominic Fifield covering uh, London football. Uh, at the Athletic, covered Chelsea for many years as well. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dom Fivefield. Thanks for this, Dominic. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you all doing? Uh, we're we're well, thank you. Uh, it's uh, never a dull moment with Chelsea. And and <sighs> as much as uh, Frank Lampard had, had great success last season, it always felt like... Um, th- he wasn't going to last in this position. And, and today the, the, the parting of ways finally happened. Yeah. I, I, th- I don't think we should underestimate how well he did last season. Cause I don't think many people thought they would finish top four and qualify for the champions league. And, and doing that whilst also blooding a load of young, younger Chelsea players who'd come through their Academy that, that, that was to his enormous credit and Chelsea will be reaping the rewards of that in the, in the years ahead, I'm sure. But the, the reality was, as you say, that when a, a team that's overseen by Roman Abramovich goes out and spends over £200 million in one transfer window where no one else really seems to be spending any money at all, the dynamics and the, and the expectations around the job completely change. And it really was that it felt increasingly over the last month or so that where Lampard was very much the, the right man for Chelsea last season, he was almost very much the wrong man for this season because it needed an older head, it needed somebody possibly a bit more tactically, tactically astute or, or well-rounded in that, in that department just to oversee these new players coming in and to give Chelsea a bit of weight in the, in the title um, pursuit of this season because as it stands at the moment, they're, they're hopelessly adrift in terms of the, the Premier League title itself but, but also struggling to get back into that top four to qualify for the Champions League again. So, you know, look, we'll look at that Chelsea squad and we see a lot of players on a lot of long-term deals, uh, players that Frank Lampard, for the most part, has brought in. So if you are somebody, Dominic, who's thinking of uh, replacing Frank Lampard, what are you walking into here? Because it seems to me as if it's going to be awfully hard to undo a lot of the things that have already been done. Yeah, a couple of things on that. I mean, I, w- I would say that I'd, I'm not sure Frank Lampard brought those players into that club, maybe with the exception of, of Ben Chilwell. I think the rest of those guys that were bought in the summer were very much club signings, um, bought in by a recruitment department, uh, overseen by a hierarchy that wanted to take the club in a certain way. And, that, that you know, we see the likes of Kai Havertz and Timo Werner and the, and the money spent on those guys. Um, and that that is being 
dictated from above, or I think almost imposed upon the head coach. And that, that's fine as a model. You know, it works across Europe. It works in particular in Germany. So, so no dispute with that. And Lampard knew what he was walking into when he came into the job. In terms of succession and, and what they're walking into, well, I, you know what you're walking into with Chelsea. Uh, you just have to look back at the history of the club, really, since... Mourinho's uh, departure first time around in 2007 there's a cycle two three years at most in terms of coaches you you come in as soon as as soon as Champions League qualification is threatened you probably find yourself either undermined uh, for good and and you don't really ever recover from that and you can look at Conte you can look at Ancelotti even on the way back in 2010-11 on that basis, but but also if if feels if they feel as if a change is needed, they'll they'll make it. They'll make it. There's no sentimentality there. Um, if a club icon like Frank Lampard can get shown the door, um, you know, halfway through his second season in charge, then anybody can get sacked at that club. Mourinho's lost his job twice, the most successful manager in that club's history. So he it'll be too sure who comes in and and he'll he'll know what he's having to work with and, and and the big question for me is of all the coaches out there certainly the german coaches that have been linked with that job who f- would fit the model in terms of the director of football in terms of the recruitment in terms of just doing the coaching tuchel is the most combative he's the most volatile he's the most likely to fall out with a hierarchy and and to fall out with those above him in the club and <laughs> which suggests to me that we'll be revisiting this in six months, in 18 months, whatever it is in the future, but it, it will be soon. That's the interesting part here, uh, Dominic, in that you look at the situation and it hasn't been bad for that long, right? Like Chelsea went top early in, in December uh, after a win over Leeds. And yeah, it's been a tough six weeks, but it's, it's almost like they were waiting for that first slump uh, yeah. to to come through for Frank and the politics and and some of the um, distrust within from Frank towards those above him uh, had had lingered for for much longer than that. And was probably quite justified, to be honest. If you're Frank Lampard and you you feel as if those above you don't necessarily have complete faith in you, and that. You almost feel as if you were a, a band-aid, a stopgap appointment to, to to get Chelsea through a very difficult time. But bear in mind, when he came in in the summer of 2019, Chelsea faced two transfer windows um, without being able to make any signings after a FIFA ban. They just lost Eden Hazard to to Real Madrid. You know, there was that was a major, was a, a difficult, a major difficult time for, for for Chelsea Football Club. They weren't used to that. This is a club that goes out and spends money. It doesn't. It's, it's never really lent on its academy as much as it should have done. And Lampard tapped into that that talent brilliantly well. And, and you know the likes of Mason Mount and Reese James and Tammy Abraham and Billy Gilmore will play a, a big part in Chelsea's future. But yes, the the first opportunity that that hierarchy has had to to get rid of him they have that's what they've done and it which suggests to me that there was always this underlying concern that he wasn't the right man for the job long term and in fairness I think you can look back at those those results even even during the good run of 16 games unbeaten 17 match I think it was in all competitions actually did Chelsea have a discernible style did they have a discernible pattern of play 
did they even have combinations that worked particularly well together out on the pitch? And I know this is an exceptional season in the Premier League because of the number of games that have been crammed in in a shorter period of time. It's it's alien with with COVID and 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 lack of supporters and you know Stamford Bridge would have been rocking for Frank Lampard throughout this period, believe me. But I think they they wanted more evidence of of a philosophy of of yeah, evidence that they, he was progressing that team and they they didn't see it. It's all been a bit aimless recently. I think the fallouts with senior players didn't help. Uh, when you spend over 115 million pounds on two two precocious talents from Germany, you want them to succeed. They've got to be in the team. They've got to be thriving. And I don't think there's any evidence that either Timo Werner or Kai Havertz looks particularly comfortable at the moment in the way they're playing. So, so unfortunately, it's been the manager, the head coach, whatever you want to call it, that, that, that has paid the price yet again in the sort of, this is the way that Chelsea operates and he gets some trophies quite often, but it also leads to this dismay quite often as well when, when you can argue that people don't get the chance that they merit. Dominic, why, why hasn't it worked with Havertz and Werner? I think Werner has shown flashes of it working. Um, weirdly, he, I thought he played quite well this weekend as a as an, a second striker or a number 10 role. I mean, he's often been shoved out on the left wing because Chelsea have Tammy Abraham and Olivier Giroud who can offer so much through the centre. So I have, I have fewer concerns about Timo Werner. I suspect that whoever come, or Thomas Tuchel comes in and, and that, that, will, that will click quite quickly and he'll go on the scoring streak. Kai Havertz, I don't know why they bought him other than that he's a great talent and they could because he doesn't fit into any system that Chelsea were trying to play. There were too many players of of a similar, similar ilk or, or were better suited to the Premier League or who would do a better job immediately in that Chelsea lineup. He'd done well last season as well. And Kai Havertz just smacked of a of a move that Chelsea thought, well, he is, we're told he's a generational talent. We've seen the evidence of him doing well at Bayer Leverkusen in the Bundesliga. Wouldn't it be better to have him than not have him? And, oh, we, we're in a position where we can buy him this summer and not many other teams can. I mean, Real Madrid was the one that was always linked with uh, Havertz. So Chelsea go out and buy him, but they don't have really any, anywhere they can put him. There's no, there's, no, there's no void in the team that he's going to come in and fill. So he just looks like a almost like a luxury signing, really. But when you spend that much money, up to seventy-two million pounds on a player, it's really got to work. So he hasn't justified having the team built around him. The team was built around him at Leicester last last Tuesday, and he was hopeless. Unfortunately, he looked a little boy lost. He looked completely shorn of all confidence, as he would be when when you've gone through what he has gone through this season. Uh, and it's sort of become a vicious cycle on that. Fisher circle rather on, on, on that um on that front. You know, he doesn't justify his position in the team, but he needs to be in the team to justify Chelsea having paid so much money for him. And again, Lampard has paid the cost of not getting the best out of him. Is that why is Havertz the reason Havertz and Werner, I guess, the reason why Chelsea has been looking for a, a German replacement specifically and Thomas Tuchel is going to be that that man? I think that comes into it, definitely. I mean that's don't get me wrong. I mean, Havertz and Werner both speak very good English. It's not as if they've been 
wandering around the training ground down at Cobham, wondering what the hell is going on because everybody else is speaking an alien language. <laughs> it's it's uh, the, the other there are other aspects to it as well. I I, I suspect that that Chelsea look at the German model of of the head coach working within a structure at a football club, and they they like that idea of a of a coach that basically gets given players like Havertz, like Werner, and gets the best out of them. That That is their forte. I mean, it's a sweeping generalisation. Not all German coaches are the same, but the ones that are steeped in the Bundesliga tend to to not be so political, not to not to be sort of resisting what, what was being thrust upon them from from above and, and happy working in that, with that balance, that, that, you know, coaching, coaching players effectively. Now, the, the irony is that... I'm not sure Thomas Keats Tuchel is particularly like that. I mean, he's probably the one, the one German coach out there that will probably have a go back at the people. But he's available, and uh, he he's he's on the market since his departure from from Paris Saint Germain. So, I mean, there, there is the, I, I suppose Chelsea will look at it and hope that he he brings a bit of that sort of discipline from the Bundesliga and and the yeah and the willingness to work within that structure. And use, you know, impose a philosophy at a club. Don't get me wrong, he did that at Borussia Dortmund. And he, if he does that at Chelsea, Chelsea will be laughing. I'm wondering if, and this might be a little too guilty of taking a leap here, but when you see what Steven Gerrard is doing in Scotland um, and you see what Frank Lampard has done here, I wonder if there's any any of that at work. You know, those two, those two when they were players, were kind of uh, peers and... and you know, I'm not saying that Roman Abramovich would wake up and go, well, the Liver- you know, the ex-Liverpool guy is doing better than our guy, so I want to get rid of him. But I- I'm just wondering if maybe there is the dissatisfaction with Frank also comes from, in, in some ways, from that, you know, the, the-, the sort of the counter tale of uh, Stevie G. I'll be-, I'll be honest. I don't think any Premier League club will measure success in the Premier League and in the Champions League, and compare it with with leading a club like Rangers, albeit after Celtic's, you know, constant success over the last nine years, and and usurping Celtic is a huge achievement for for Stephen Gerrard. Don't get me wrong, but but you're talking about two clubs up there that are going to one of those two clubs is going to win the league, and it's usually Celtic. This year it's going to be Rangers. By the look of things, um, England's. The Premier League is very, very, very different, and I mean the the biggest test of that will be what job if Stephen Gerrard does leave Rangers at some point, what type of Premier League job does he get? Because there will probably be an argument, and it, it may well come to pass that Stephen Gerrard doesn't walk into a job at the top six, and that probably is a measure of of how hierarchies at Premier League clubs view the. The Scottish Premiership, rightly or wrongly, I don't really want to. I'm not here to offer an opinion on that particularly. I think it's unfair on, to a certain extent. And Stephen Gerrard has done a wonderful job, but I don't think Roman Abramovich is is sitting there comparing what Stephen Gerrard has achieved um, at Rangers um, and what Frank Lampard has has struggled to to achieve at Chelsea. Bear in mind that if Roman Abramovich was owning Rangers, if he if he owned Rangers and Stephen Gerrard had finished second last season, he wouldn't even be in the position this year to 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 go back and try and win that title because he would have been sacked in the summer. I mean, the countless number of Chelsea managers over the recent over the Abramovich ownership have have been sacked for finishing second, and uh, when he expects them to win things, so 
it's a it's a difficult comparison to make. The reality is that Lampard was brilliant, a brilliant appointment at the time that the club needed unifying in the summer of 2019. After what we shouldn't forget was a particularly explosive time under Antonio Conte, where there were lots of political manoeuvrings and wounds inflicted, and then the Maurizio Sarri year where the fans were in uproar. There was open mutiny at Stamford Bridge in, in certain certain respects. Some of the chants that were coming up at home and away um, about Sari and Sari Ball. It was a fractious time. Lampard came in and, and unified. He he healed those wounds. Had a really intensely difficult time for Chelsea Football Club given the transfer ban. But Chelsea changed again last summer. When they started spending money again, the expectations changed and Lampard couldn't match them, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's uh, it's been a wild ride for for Frank. And um, as mentioned, uh, just a little over a month ago, they were top of the table. Now they're just trying to hang into the top ten. Before we let you go, Dominic, I mean uh, the Premier League table this season is is wild. We see uh, a little Manchester derby forming at the top, but hey, there's Leicester, and you know it's just a, a really compact table. We haven't really had that with the with the dominance of Manchester City and Liverpool the last few seasons. No, it's probably born of the rather alien nature both of the season and, and how the football is being played at the moment, I, I imagine. It's uh, covering it. Look, it's, uh, if you actually watch the football and, and enjoy the football, it is, it's fascinating. If this was in any other season that we had these this many contenders for the title and for the top four, we'd, we'd be lapping it up and saying that this is this ferocious competition is is brilliant, brilliant, entrancing viewing. But the reality is football without supporters is, is is not a pleasant experience it's it's not the same and it's it's producing these weird and wonderful and wild results and sequences i mean virtually every team including you know liverpool now and arsenal we've seen and even leicester and man city getting thumped 5-2 at home by leicester as well Every team has gone through stodgy patches of form and where, where things of confidence appears to have drained away and, and questions have been asked of the management. I mean, it's, it's probably even the case with Pep Guardiola, to be honest. Um, I, I imagine that ultimately quality will out and we'll see Manchester City, who, who appear to be the team most informed, although they've got to cope without De Bruyne now for another six weeks. Um, City and Liverpool will recover some poise and, and re-establish themselves at the top. But... It is a really strange table, a really, really odd season, and it really reflects the fact that society at the moment over here and with you as well is is enduring something at the moment, which which is making everyday life very, very, very strange and and difficult, and that's something that's being reflected in quite a lot of the football we're watching. It uh, it does feel like uh, the soul of the game is is missing uh, a little bit with. Uh... No fans in the stands. Uh, Dominic, we uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. Pleasure. At Dom Fifield is where you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, we've got a listener question coming in here on a kick in the grass. You can always send them through at Dan Richo underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. DMs are open. If you have a question at any point through the week, uh, send them over and we will do our best to get them on the show. James is asking about Thomas Tuckel. Jeff mm. and he says will Tuckle be able to bring in his own guys before the end of the winter transfer deadline I hope that Tuckle doesn't give many more chances to Jorginho or 
Alonzo unless a back three formation becomes permanent. Um, I, with all the money that Chelsea spent over the course of the summer, I can't imagine them doing too much much business here before the end of the January transfer window, Jeff. No, I mean, I think the bigger question is how does he sort of kickstart Timo Werner and, and Kai Havertz um, yeah. more than anything else? You know, I look at that team, the crying need. I, I think those have all been addressed, right? Ben Chilwell, Mendy. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of you need more talent or you need different players in there. I think you need to make to figure out a way to make all this work because I, I you know, even up front with Tammy Abraham and, and Giroux, I mean, there's got to be a way of making that work. I mean, my goodness, Man City's challenging for title and they, they, you know, they've spent much of the year without their top, without their top two forwards. So maybe, you know, if, if Tuckle feels that he needs to bring in kind of a veteran guy, but I, I look at that team and I, you know, I, I, again, I don't think a lack of talent is the issue. It's making all the pieces work that, uh, that is the, the crucial thing. It's, it's crazy how much talent they have out on the field and, uh, how listless they could be at times, uh, with Frank Lampard. Uh, we'll see if, if Tuckle's able to get the most out of that uh, in the future. Like, I, I think that's a team that could use a, a base midfielder, kind of, you know, someone in the like of Angolo Kante was, but, you know, he's, uh, getting, a little bit on uh, to it. And we know he's been in transfer rumors uh, over the last couple of windows. I was surprised that they sold Fakayo Tomori um, to, to AC Milan over the last week. But um, I, I think his, in the future, his biggest uh, task or Chelsea's biggest task will be to continue fixing their back line. But you could say that about almost every uh, Premier League club. Uh, we're we're at the midway point pretty much here, Jeff, and uh, we're not going to see much out of this January transfer window. I think that much we have figured out to this point um, with the way that uh, the coronavirus has affected the finances of football. It doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on, but I, I keep looking at this thing and and wondering Manchester United, Manchester City, but also Leicester City, like they're 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 not going away. And as for Liverpool, I mean, with the way that they're playing, I don't know if we're going to see them come out of this and and be able to figure it out and contend for the title this year. I, I think their their biggest concern is probably staying in the top four now. Oh, I don't. I well, I mean, I I think Liverpool will will manage to stay in the top four. I I just think that in in some ways it's it's maybe similar to Chelsea in that where do you. I guess other than bringing somebody in to give you a little bit of depth at the back so that you don't have to play Fabinho and Jordan Henderson, uh, you know, you, you can let them move up into the, their preferred midfield or midfield role. Other than that, though, I mean, nobody is, you know, you're not going to bring anybody in. I don't think he's necessarily going to affect the attack. They really, they really missed uh, Diego Jota, Jota. And I, I think people would be surprised when, when that when that deal was made, he was a good player and everything, but I don't think people expected him to come in and make the mark and make the mark that he did. Liverpool's pretty cautious when it comes to spending money. And I think you're probably going to see, you're probably going to see them ride with what they have. I just, um, I, I would like them, as I said, to bring in another, uh, you know, another center back, somebody that could bolster, 
even to allow one of those two, Fabinho or, or Henderson, to go back in the midfield role, preferably Henderson. But I don't expect anything anything great out of out of Liverpool in the transfer window. I just don't think there's. I I think we underestimate this the significance of the financial impact of COVID nineteen, even on these big teams. I just don't see a lot of teams spending money. Real Madrid didn't buy anybody in the summer. Uh, apparently, there's going to be a big sell-off in the coming summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think we'll be seeing Erling Haaland or Kylian Mbappe joining uh, Real Madrid anytime soon. We know and we've talked about here on the show how how hard it's hit uh, Barcelona. There's a lot of teams that are, are really struggling right now um, financially. And that's uh, with the uncertainty of when we're even going to have fans again. I mean, they don't even know where they're playing the Euro this summer. Yeah. Whether or not there'll be fans at that. So how could there not be still a ton of uncertainty? And why would there be a willingness for teams to go out and spend money? And also, if you have an asset that you want to sell, a younger player maybe, that you've been looking to cash in on, now's now's not the time to do it. You may as well hang on and and hope that the the outlook in the future is better than it currently is. But I can't see much moves being made. Uh, here before the end of January. Uh, it's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on a kick in the grass. Coming up, well, a European Super League, we all think of it as something that may not happen, but it's gotten to the point that FIFA had to speak out against it for the first time. We'll discuss next. It is a kick in the grass. Back in on a kick in the grass. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. So another question coming in is we, uh, you know, kind of take that midseason look at uh, some of the leagues right now, Jeff. And um, we've got this one from Uncle Dropsy on Twitter. And he's asked, when was the last time the two Milanese clubs were at the top of the table in Serie A? And... That's where we find Milan and Inter right now. They both drop points over the weekend, but uh, they, Milan specifically, are the winter champions, uh, which nobody would have predicted. And here we are, it, are, are ten years on, <laughs> Milan and Inter are atop the table in Serie A. Do you think they continue it that way through the the back half? I think Milan will uh, of the two. I think Milan will be will will finish uh, finish higher up. I I look. I yeah. How can you still? How can you pick against Juve? I mean, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I know that you're you're like you're waiting for the disaster to happen. But honestly, yeah. at, at some point you give a nod to history, Danny, and you go, come on, they're still, you know, they're they're still the team. But I, hey. I'll take the team that has that has Latin and and see them finishing one or two. Absolutely, but I I still think Juve wins this. I really do. So Juve's got a game in hand, and they are seven points back of Milan right now. Um, it, you know I I think there's a lot going on at Juve right now. For me personally, as a fan, I'd like them to just focus on Champions League because the Champions League could be pretty wide open. Um, as as we get going there uh, in the next couple of weeks, and they they need to they need to focus there if they're going to eventually break that spell of twenty almost twenty five years now I guess twenty five years since their last Champions League trophy, uh, it's 
this might be the year to do it because you only have so much of a window with Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't think they've got the midfield to really compete with a Bayern or or Manchester City should it get to that point. But this has got to be the year. And I don't think they can compete on both fronts. That's my issue there. And as for AC Milan, like with the way Zlatan has played, I don't see them dropping off. They've even added with Tamori and mm-hmm. uh, Mario Mandzukic, uh, knowing and sensing that this could be a year where we didn't really expect it coming in. Champions League qualification was the goal, but here we are now, and, and they could definitely be first. But this is this is something we're seeing across Europe. You know, the the Premier League title race is great. Even in Liga, we're seeing Jonathan David score goals, yeah. big goals to keep up mm-hmm. with PSG. I mean, it's kind of a result of the coronavirus, no fans. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the tables, just like there is off the pitch. Uh, around football, yeah, and a lot of the big, a lot of the big teams played a lot of football in a condensed period of time last year when they came back, and then they didn't have their regular downtime. So it is interesting if you note. I mean, you look at all the teams that that even even Bayern Munich, um, you know, they've hit a rough spot here as well. I, and and to me, Liverpool looks tired. I mean, anyone, any of those teams, any of the really big teams in Europe that that you know played a lot of significant games after we came out of the pandemic and then didn't have downtime. I, I I think this was to be expected. I really do. Yeah. And, and we're definitely seeing it and the lack of transfer activity. uh, Nobody's got, you know, perfect home records uh, really anymore. So it's made for a lot. uh, It's going to make for intrigue through the second half of the season. There's, there's no doubt about that. Now, an interesting story that came out last week towards the end of last week, um, FIFA, and it's six, you know, member nations or confederations, I should say, uh, warning against a European Super League. And specifically FIFA, who said in a statement that a Super League, a European Super League, would not be recognized by either FIFA or the respective confederation. Any club or player involved in such a competition would, as a consequence, not be allowed to participate in any competition organized by FIFA or their respective confederation. So that means any player playing in a European Super League would not be allowed to play in a World Cup. I think what it means, Danny, is you're going to have to cut us a check if you want to do that, and then we'll let you guys play. <laughs> like, let's face it, it's it's FIFA. They're, what what yeah. they're saying is, oh, we got a dollar figure here. Yeah, we 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 don't like what you're doing right now, but if you match this dollar figure, yeah, we'll we'll think about it. I like what I like what Pep said, man. I absolutely like what Pep. I I don't think we should be looking at that. I think we should be looking at reducing the number of clubs in the Premier League and maybe in the English Football League as well, and kind of looking at things that way. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of throwing another throwing another league out there. I think the domestic leagues have got a cachet uh, that's worth keeping. But if you want to, if you want to improve the quality of competition among teams, then I think you have to ask yourself, yeah, look at the premier league table. Could you do without four of the bottom teams? Probably. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with Pep on this completely. You know, there's, there's a lot of intrigue in that, you know, like, do you really need all of these teams uh, in every division? And do you need such a 
the quality doesn't really live up to it. You know, when, when you're watching um, teams lose 6-0 to Bayern Munich or whatever regularly, that's, oh, who's that good for? Um, I, I can totally hear that argument. Now, on the Super League, though, it, part of this is getting the big clubs want the Champions League to be the way they want it to be, and they want to take a bigger pie. They don't want to have to give up as mm-hmm. much uh, to UEFA. But it does feel like an inevitability that, you know, the the top clubs in Europe look at the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, and they want their closed league in European soccer. And they think it could be just a huge moneymaker. And it would be, and it would essentially replace the Champions League. But do you think we ever see something like that where it's it's closed in that way? You know, the, this proposition has 16 top clubs and four qualifiers from each domestic league. Now, that would essentially make European soccer or that specific competition as close to anything we've seen to the North American model in European soccer. I don't think we'll see it. Um, this is, you know, we've heard this before going back years. Somebody's always floating this idea. Generally, it's be- generally it's because somebody wants something. I think you're right. This may be the the bigger clubs demanding a bigger share of the of, of the pie. Uh, from from UEFA, I I just don't see it happening. But I, but again, I will say this: we don't we don't know what the sport is going to look like when we come out of COVID nineteen. We don't know what we don't know what any sport's going to look like. I, I think we'd be we'd be silly if we thought that we are going to go through a full year, more than a calendar year, of matches with no fans, and think that there is not going to be some sort of an impact from that. You throw in Brexit and, you know, and there's, there's, there are a lot of, there are a lot of rough waters for the various economies in Europe right now. And, but I don't, I don't think this is the time. I, I, I just, I, I, I don't think this is the time. I think you need to retrench, get a couple of years of, you know, fans coming back into the stands, get that under, get that under your belt and then have a proper think about it. Let's just try to get a Euro. Let's try to get back on a regular Euro and world cup run here before we start thinking of, of creating new leagues. Yeah. It's, I mean, it it is selfish from the big clubs, but you know, they're, they're all kind of in it right now. Uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, uh, Manchester United, even Uh, there's a lot of talk going on here and it, it, it probably ends, amounts to just posturing, but it's definitely interesting to note and to see where it heads from here. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, when we come back, you don't know what you're doing. Mm. We'll get to it. It is a kick in the grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Final segment here on a kick in the grass and uh, an update on our fantasy league. A lot of uh, managers using their their extra boosts. Mark Atkinson played his bench boost uh, to get all the way up to 143 points this week. And that moves him to 12th in the table. Shouts to Mark, who had 20 point double game weeks from John Stones and Aaron Cresswell. Apparently, Jeff Blair was not the only one to roster John Stones uh, for this past double game week. And uh, it was uh, it was quite the fruitful one at that. Um, it is a kick in the grass. Uh, so a new segment. We teased it last week here on the show. You don't know what you're doing. Oh, 
weekend jeff is to who's really just not uh, at the top of their form well i'm gonna take a uh, i'm gonna take a very early shot at thomas tuckle and say that we'll be <laughs> by the end by the end of the of this of this season we'll be retiring this honor and giving it to him uh him and roman abramovich uh don't don't know what they're doing i uh I think it's a marriage that will definitely end in an explosion. That's uh, that's the only way I think Thomas Tuchel uh, will work at Chelsea. I'm pointing at the most obvious. Uh, Manchester United, Liverpool, I guess they only should play cup ties because the FA Cup match was actually entertaining, unlike their Premier League uh, fixture from not that long ago. And uh, Reese Williams, uh, I know he's young. I, I know uh, he's he's in a tough spot, all the injuries, but... Talk about having a bad day, man. I mean, he was just awful for Liverpool. And if you were looking for any shred of confidence in Liverpool overturning their recent form, hey, they finally scored a goal. But here's here's Reese Williams making a mockery of of their back line. It's it's tough to to find some hope there unless they they look for a new center back here in this January window and get themselves settled across the pitch. Reese Williams, be better. All right, that is uh, you don't know what you're doing. You can get your submissions in as well at DanRicho underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. I just uh, before we go, I just want to give a parting shot to Mesut Ozil, who is uh, oh there you go off to to Fenerbahce. Uh, it was it was a great run, uh, an even better finish. Uh, we'll always remember him for <laughs> for saving the mascot. At uh, Arsenal. Because what one, else did he really do? Congratulations. You've taken one more shot this year than Mesut Ozil has. So well done, Danny. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and that'll close out this edition of A Kick in the Grass at SN Jeff Blair and at Dan Riccio underscore. Thanks for listening, as always, on the Sportsnet Radio Network.